Well, I'm excited today, church, to embark on a new uh, sermon series. I just want to briefly recap where we've been uh, in the preaching on Sunday morning for a while now. So all the way back in January of 2019, we started a sermon series in the Gospel according to John, and we were in that book until August of 2021, so almost three years that we spent in John. Uh, There was a little thing called COVID in the middle of that, so that definitely shook some of that up, and there was some topical and deterrence there. Um, But back in September, we started a topical series um, that sought to understand human government, the fact that, that God has ordained three main spheres or jurisdictions of human government, the family, the church, and the state. And these are lateral to one another. We often think that the state is over the church and the family, and it gives us all its rules and tells us what to do. But the Bible says that God is sovereign over the state, over the church, and the family. And these each have a sphere of authority and power, but they are separated from one another. And these last five weeks we spent uh, in the book of Isaiah. And I'm a little bit reluctant to leave that wonderful book Uh, But I hope you were encouraged just to bask upon the Lord Jesus, upon another maybe facet of His ministry, seeing it from the perspective of the servant of Yahweh, seeing that He will come to rule, His good rule will bring justice to the nations um, on that day, and we, we long for that day, we look forward to that. And so today we embark in a study in the book of 1 Timothy, and Lord willing, the book of 2 Timothy. And so why, 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 why are we choosing this book, you might ask? Um, there's two verses in this book that I think are helpful that tell us why Paul wrote. And um, this is always helpful when the author of a biblical book gives the reason for his writing. So we sort of know where he's going and what is the purpose. And so two verses. The first one is verse 3 of chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse me. And he says there, To Timothy, this is Paul writing, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Stay there so that you can charge certain people not to teach anything different from what is sound or true. And then chapter 3, verse 14, Timothy said, or excuse me, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So there's two main concerns that Paul has in writing this letter to Timothy. The first one is the purity of the church's doctrine. Excuse me, the purity of the church's doctrine. Again, in verse 3, He told Timothy, as I urged you before, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain people, certain persons, not to teach any different doctrine. And so much of this book is Paul addressing false teaching in the church there at Ephesus that Timothy is an elder over, teaching Timothy how to respond to false teachers and how to preserve sound doctrine in the church. Again, Timothy, Timothy is an elder at the church in Ephesus at this time. Now, it's interesting, you may remember, 
uh, in Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, Paul was ministering in Ephesus for about three years. This was before Timothy was an elder there. And he summons in Acts 20 all of the Ephesian elders. And he is about to leave them. And it's a really moving encounter. He, they're, they're weeping because they know it's the last time they're going to see his face. Uh, he says the Holy Spirit testifies that chains await him in Jerusalem. And it is to Jerusalem that he will go. And he warns those elders. He says, you remember, my, your blood is not on my hands. I've taught the whole counsel of God to you these last years that I've been here. And he warns them. He says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. So he warns them that wolves will come into the church And from yourselves, from within the leadership, men will rise up speaking twisted things, seeking to gain followers for themselves. Paul gives this warning to the church in Ephesus about A.D. 56 or 57, and he writes 1 Timothy in about 62 or 63. So that means in about five to seven years, these things have already come true. There is already men that have crept into the church that are seeking to lead away the disciples to errant doctrines. So he's concerned, firstly, for the purity of the church's doctrine. Secondly, he is concerned for the purity of the church's practice, how the church is structured and governed and ordered and how the saints live within that context. Again, verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so we're going to talk about a lot of things related to the church and what a healthy church looks like. We're going to talk about prayer, who we should pray for, at least to some regard. We're going to talk about the roles of women in the church. And so 1 Timothy chapter 2 is an extremely controversial text in our day because of the culture that we find ourselves in. I don't know that it was all that controversial in times past, but because of things that are happening today, feminism and other others, there are many interpretations for 1 Timothy 2, as many people have tried to, to say it can't possibly mean what it says, right? And so we're going to get into that. Um, We're going to talk about what leadership should look like in a local church, who is qualified to hold biblical office. I I think it's it's obvious to to see that when bad teaching comes into a church, it leads to bad practice, right? Our orthodoxy, what we rightly believe, is tied to our orthopraxy, how we live, how we practice. And so the purity of the church's doctrine is under attack, which is directly related to the purity of their practice and the unity of the body. And so those are the two main things I think that Paul is writing for. But then why is that relevant for us? Well, I think firstly, this book is relevant for us broadly because of the world that we live in, because of the climate and the state of the world, but also the church of Jesus Christ, the professing evangelical church. 
We live in a time of confusion. A time of confusion. Uh, we, we are not sure who does what in the church. We are, we are confused about roles in, in the church. I spoke to a brother last week who was at a church in, in town, a church you would know, a church I imagine some of you have, have been to. And the pastor there shares the pulpit, rotates the pulpit with his two sons and his daughter. And so is that biblically appropriate, right? Is that something that we ought to do? Certainly the culture would say that's good, right? But is that, is that biblically right? And so we live in a day where we are confused about gender roles. We are confused, I think, about, about man and his condition before God and the true deadness of sin that men find themselves in. Um, things like the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture are under attack today. And so Paul urges Timothy to stand firm with clarity and to hold to biblical truth. Because the, the reality is we see it in the Israelites as they come into a land. It's glorious, a land filled with milk and honey. God has brought us into our land. And look at all these pagan gods. Look at all this practice of these people. This, this, looks, this can't be harmful, right? And they're, they're swept away. And the church is always being sucked slowly into the culture. I remember when I was a kid, we used to go to Oceanside, California. Anybody ever been to Oceanside, California? It's northern San Diego County, beach there right by uh, Camp Pendleton. Where, so there's many Marines. And we'd go to the beach there, and I was a little guy in grade school, and we went one time with our neighbor and his parents, and his dad came not wanting to swim. He had Levi's on and a big a flannel Pendleton shirt. And I was out there, a little guy, and you just sort of start to drift. And if you've ever been out in the ocean, there's your, there's your, your ice chest and your family, and all of a sudden you're doing one of these, and all of a sudden I was doing one of these, you know, out there and out there. And I didn't really realize it. When you're in the undertow, you don't necessarily notice how bad it is. And they saw me out there sort of doing one of these, and the guy's dad dives in fully clothed and, and yanks me out. And I tell that story because... We don't always feel the drift as it's happening. You can look out and say, man, that kid is way far gone. And we can look at the church at sometimes and say, that is not right. But when we're in the middle of it, it's easy to slowly but surely be sucked away into the thinking of the world. And so broadly, I think we'll be helped because of the cultural moment we find ourselves. Specifically, I think we'll be helped as well um, because we are seeking here at First Baptist Church to reform all things according to the Bible. And that ought to be the intention of every church at all times and every Christian at all times. There's a motto that comes out of the Reformation, Semper Reformanda. It means keep reforming or always reforming. And the idea is not that our doctrine needs to be evolving. The idea is that our life and our practice ought to always be more and more conformed to the Bible. And so... One of the main things in this book speaks of the structure of the church's government, and that is something that we are seeking to reform here at First Baptist Church. Um, I, I was very clear from the search committee meeting that a biblical church, according to Scripture, in my understanding, is led by a plurality of elders and deacons. It is deacon-led and, or excuse me, it is elder-led and deacon-served. The Moses model or the CEO model, or the Pope model, whatever you want to call it, where one man runs the show, 
uh, is not healthy for the church and it is not healthy for the man. And so this book, I think, will help clarify for us what a healthy church ought to look like. Now, if you hear me speaking elders and deacons um, and you're saying, what about the congregation? I am a biblical congregationalist and I believe that the people have the final authority when it comes to calling pastors and officers, when it comes to doing church discipline, when it comes to the major decisions of the church, as we always have, the final authority is the will of the church. But in the day-to-day, and who is shepherding and leading, the Bible is clear that a multiplicity of men ought to be coming together to seek to shepherd the church. And so I think we'll be helped in that regard. Lastly, before we get started, I want to encourage you with something I don't normally do. I want to encourage you to read ahead. This is a short book. It's six chapters. You could read it in one sitting. It's probably about five pages or something. But I want to encourage you to, to read ahead. And as you have questions, as you have thoughts about the text, bring them to me. And I like to include them in the sermons. So if you have a question about a passage, about what is going on, I'd like to try to interact with those questions in the preaching. And so get ahead, read ahead, know what's coming. It's a short book. Um, If you come tomorrow with a question from chapter 6, probably be a while before we get there. (laughs) Um, So let's go to the Word now. 1 Timothy chapter 1 uh, is where we obviously are. And this, beloved, is God's infallible, authoritative word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. And this, uh, may God bless the reading and preaching today of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and we ask You for help. You are where our help comes from. And we pray today as we open up Your Word that You might uh, instruct Your people, that You might encourage and equip and, and challenge uh, Your people, all of us, Lord, uh, I pray that you would use me as a, as just as, a, as an instrument in the hand of the Redeemer. I pray, God, that your word would go forth uh, and that you would help any error, any nonsense to fall on deaf ears uh, and that Jesus Christ would be exalted today and worshiped as we sit under your word. And so use this time, Lord, we ask for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where do we begin with a new book of the Bible, a new biblical letter as we turn to today? There's many things that we could begin to discuss. Who wrote the book? That is, of course, the Apostle Paul. Who is he writing to? That is young Timothy, his apprentice, his protege. What is the occasion? We, we discussed that already. What is the date of the book? What is the, what is the cultural background? What is happening in the first century in Ephesus? And how do we bridge that cultural gap so that we here in Phoenix, Oregon in 2022 can have some sort of grasp on what in the world is happening 2,000 years ago in a culture that we don't really understand all that well? There's a lot of things that go into understanding what's happening here. But today, as we begin this letter, I want to primarily focus on the what I'm calling the theocentricity of this letter, or the Christocentricity. 
centricity. That is the God-centeredness of this letter. Paul is going to give much instruction to his protege, young Timothy, but he begins this letter with really a hearty foundation that is centered upon the triune God. And I think as we begin to read this letter, and as we begin to open up this text, we are reminded that as Christians, God must be at the center of all that we do. When we set out to build, when we set out to plan, when we set out to move, whatever it is that we do, raise a family, get married, get a new job, move, sell our house, all the decisions that we make, we ought to have a God-centered vision for life in a God-centered foundation that we are constantly building upon because we are His servants. Amen? We, we want to be useful for the Master. We want to be useful in the hands of our Redeemer. And so I want to look at this letter, this introduction from this vantage point, how God-centered that it is. And so we see first then the God-centered nature of this letter. Paul 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. This sentence is made up of 15 Greek words, and six of them, six of them are names or titles attributed to God. And it seems that from the beginning of this letter, as Paul begins to write, He's putting the attention or laying the emphasis not upon himself, not even upon the person to whom he writes, but upon the God that is the source and bond of their friendship and of their ministry. The letter is, of course, addressed by Paul. And in the first century, a a Hellenistic type of letter, which this is, would be sort of flip-flop from how we do it. We write the whole letter, and the very end we say, oh yeah, by the way, it's me. You know, I hope you figured that out by now. They put the person writing at the very beginning. Sort of seems to make a bit more sense, right? So he says it is Paul here, and he begins to assert the fact that he is an apostle, as he says, of Christ Jesus. And Paul does this in most of his letters, and, and I believe that he is asserting his apostolic authority. He is reminding Timothy and everyone else that might read this letter why they ought to heed his words and receive them with all the authority of God's words. And so we see, firstly, he says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is one of those select few Christians that God had called and commissioned to found, as it were, the New Testament church. Remember, Paul had the qualifications. He had seen the risen Christ. He actually knocked him off of his horse, right? In Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, he was blinded by the light. And he says, who are you, Lord? Not only was he, had he seen, laid eyes on the risen Christ, but he was commissioned directly by the risen Christ to have a unique role in pioneering the gospel. You remember Paul's M.O. was that he wanted to go where the name of Christ had yet to be named. He was not content. He was not a mere pastor that would sit in one community and teach and preach. 
But he wanted to continue to plant churches and to plant churches and to see God's church spread across the known world. That was one of the main focuses of an apostle. God had done signs and wonders through Paul to verify his apostleship. There's, there's a time in Acts chapter 19, I believe, where Paul is working and he's got a handkerchief right in his apron and he throws down the handkerchief and they grab it and they bring it to people that are sick and God heals through a sweaty napkin that Paul had wiped his brow off of or the apron that he had worn as he labored. We see Paul exercise a demon out of a young girl at one point. We see Paul raise a young man from the dead after he fell out of a window because Paul preached for 12 hours into the night and the guy was tired and fell asleep. The apostles were those men that God used to be the foundation of the Christian church. They were men that penned scripture and their words hold the very authority of God himself. Their teaching is binding upon the church and their office, the office of apostle, no longer exists in our day. And if you hear someone telling you they are an apostle, red flags ought to, ought to come. So he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says then, by command of God, our Savior. Notice from the beginning, Paul takes no credit for his apostleship. It's almost as if he had no say in the matter. I'm an apostle by command of God. He called me, he ordained this thing to be so, and I'm simply being faithful to the calling that God has given me. Remember, on that day when he was called, he was not friendly with the church, right? He had a letter in his pocket, the authority of the high priest, the chief priest, to go to Damascus with chains and to imprison Christians. He held the garments of the men that killed the first martyr of the church, Stephen, and he was in hearty agreement, the Bible says, with their stoning of young Stephen. So he is an apostle by command of God, and he asserts here his authority, but it is an authority that is delegated by God. He has not appointed himself to be an apostle. No man has called him to be an apostle, but he is an apostle by the ordination of Christ himself. And so this means something for us as we open up this book. As this book is written by an apostle and enshrined in Holy Scripture, it speaks with authority, not just to Timothy, but to us today. It speaks with authority, not just to First Baptist Church in Ephesus, but it speaks with authority to First Baptist Church in Phoenix, Oregon in 2022. And that means that we cannot simply dismiss the stuff we don't like. One of the things commentators often do, and, and we need to understand cultures, is just dismiss the hard texts and say they're, they're not culturally relevant. They were, it was a cultural thing then, but it's not really important for us. No, we need to heed this word as a command from an apostle himself for the church. And so from the outset, we see that God is at center stage. The triune God is the focus, and He is central. Notice what Paul says again. He is an apostle by command of God, our Savior. It's not often in the Bible. It happens, but it's not often the Father 
is called the Savior. And Paul here appeals to the God that saves. This is the God that him and Timothy have been called into the service of. And this is a significant statement for him. Because in the first century, there were many so-called saviors. A lot of the pagans believed that their pagan gods, their false deities, were saviors. That they could save you in some fashion. Nero himself, the emperor at the time, fancied himself as a sort of savior. And emperor worship was a thing that was developing at, at this time. And so Paul, from the outset, declares that God is our Savior. That there is only one Savior. And the Father's been saying this. We saw it in the book of Isaiah the last few weeks. He says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He says elsewhere, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. This is the exclusive message of the Bible, that there is one Savior. And then he goes on to say that he has been called and commissioned by God our Savior in Christ Jesus our hope. Christ Jesus our hope. Now it's interesting that he says God our Savior and then Christ Jesus because Jesus means God is salvation or Yah saves. Notice that Paul is happy to speak of the Father and the Son in the same breath. He is happy to attribute deity and divinity to Jesus Christ as He is to the Father. And we ought to then then too, right? And so from the beginning, God is, is central. He is an apostle commissioned by God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. He is an apostle of Jesus. And we see, secondly, then, the God centered relationship of Paul and Timothy. The God centered relationship of Paul and Timothy. Notice his words again by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy now, my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. These two men, as brothers, call upon the same Lord and Father. These two men as brothers appeal to the same blood that was spilt for their sin. These two men labor for the same gospel and to see the same kingdom advanced. And it's interesting how you can hear the love that Paul has for Timothy as he writes to this young man. A little background on on their story. Paul would meet Timothy in Acts chapter 16. And it says there in Acts 16 that he was already a disciple. Timothy was. He was probably around 20 at that time. He's probably around 40 at the time of 1 Timothy. And we read there that he was the son of a believing Jewish woman. His mom was a believer and his father was a Greek. Probably, it seems, an unbeliever. And it says that he was spoken well of already as a young man in the community. And Paul wanted to bring Timothy into the mission field. He wanted to bring him to labor for the gospel as a young man, and he did so. He circumcised Timothy because of his reception from the Jews, because his father was not a Jew. 
Um, and we see Timothy and Paul labor alongside one another all throughout the New Testament. Uh, we see that Paul took Timothy on the Macedonian call. That is when Paul had a vision that a man in Macedonia was saying, come, please help us. And they go to uh, what would become the Philippian church and they find their Lydia and some ladies uh, praying by the river and God converts Lydia there. He opens her mind to see uh, what Paul was teaching. In most of his books, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, and more, Paul mentions Timothy in the introduction that he is laboring alongside this brother. Listen to some of the ways that he speaks of Timothy. He calls him a fellow worker. He calls him his brother. He calls him a proven laborer for Christ. He calls him a beloved child. And he calls him a beloved and faithful child in the Lord. It seems that these men had a wonderful relationship in Christ. Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy and Timothy a spiritual son. I love Paul's words as he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. He tells them there that he would gladly spend and be spent for their souls. That he would gladly spend his resources and spend himself for the souls of that church. And clearly, Paul has done so with this young man, Timothy. Paul poured out his life into this young man. He sought diligently to pass down the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. He entrusted to Timothy the mysteries of the gospel and encouraged him to identify faithful men and to do the same with them. As we look at the relationship of these men, uh, we see a wonderful example of Christian love, of Christian friendship, and of Christian discipleship. The last letter that we have, the last writing of Paul, is Second. Timothy, right before the end of his life. And, and you know, in that book, he says that I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. He is staring the, in the face of the executioner's sword. He's not going to pass from this life naturally. He knows that his life is coming to an end. His martyrdom is right in front of him. He's ran his race. He's finished his course and, and, and waiting for him, laid up for him is that crown of righteousness from the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Timothy is one of the most moving charges ever penned to a pastor to keep the faith, to preach the word, to stand boldly against those that would have itching ears that have no time to endure sound doctrine, to be strengthened by the grace of God and to instruct faithful men to do the same. And as Paul gets done exhorting young Timothy to hold fast, listen to what he tells his young son in the faith at the end of his life. Do your best to come to me soon. He says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left you, also the books, and above all, the parchments. And a bit later, he says, do your best to come to me before winter. Now, this was significant because the Mediterranean Sea would basically be shut down from November to March because the winter was too dangerous to have ships out on the water. And so trade and, and, and getting a transport would be almost impossible if Paul waited until the winter. 
And Timothy knows, or excuse me, Paul knows that if Timothy delays and doesn't get to see him before winter, he probably will never see his young son again. So at the end of his life, with all that Paul has labored and done, he desires to see his young son in the faith. He desires to see his young child, as he says, Timothy. Now I want to ask a question at the risk of sounding trite or cliche. Do you have many Timothys in your life? Do you have young men, young ladies that you are pouring into? Do you have folks in your life that you are spending yourself for, that you are willing, like Paul, to be wrung out for? Now, I know this certainly begins in the home, and that is center stage, but I think we see in Paul and Timothy an element of Christian friendship and Christian discipleship that is lost in some way in our day. We see vividly that Christian discipleship is not clinical and sterile and cold, but Paul loved this man as a son. He took on the role of father to him. He was affectionate towards him. He was not too proud or too manly to tell him that that he loved him. And he lived his life before Timothy. His, much of his discipleship was him ministering before Timothy. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 3. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Timothy had seen Paul arrested. He had seen him persecuted. He had seen him chased out of town. He had seen him falsely accused. And apparently Timothy followed in his footsteps as a faithful servant because we see at the end of the book of Hebrews that Timothy had just been released from prison himself. But he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. There's a depth here in their relationship, a a sincere bond and a love. You know, I think commonly today we sort of lament uh, the state of our culture. We look at the world and we say, what in the heck is going on? Uh, We look at the church and we say, what what is going on? Why why are things like they are? Uh, We look at our young people. There's a thing out there called TikTok. Don't go there. It is a wild, wild place. Sad place, honestly. We look at our young people and we say, what in the world is going on? But are we investing in people's lives? Are we pouring ourselves into the next generation? We need faithful men and women to be passing down the faith to those that are younger than us. We need Pauls. No matter how old you are, you need a Paul, right? We need mature men and women over us that can encourage us and equip us and strengthen us. And we also need those that are younger than us. They need us to pour into them, to grab hold of them, to encourage them. As we see this this incredible relationship between Timothy and Paul, 
And beloved, God has brought us here together into a family. God has brought us here into a covenant community to serve the Lord Jesus Christ together. We have a we have a, a strong individualistic impulse because we are red-blooded Americans, right? And that's sort of in our DNA of who we are. But God brings together churches as families to serve the Lord Jesus Christ together in community, to disciple and equip one another. As Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. One of the things that we looked to implement in the, new, in, the, in the near future is a church covenant. And that's basically a document that lays down how we want to live together at First Baptist Church, how we want to love one another and encourage one another, and also come alongside and challenge one another and give others the freedom to do the same for us. As we see here in this relationship that they have, uh, I think we see two sides We see Christian friendship and Christian discipleship, and we can often have one or the other. We see a real loving friendship. There is sacrificial love taking place. There is heartfelt intimacy between these men. It's not a shallow, fake relationship. Listen to how Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 3. He says, I remember you constantly... In my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, how I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Apparently, the last time they separated, they wept. Now, I just want to say, men, can you say that to another man? I long to see you that my heart might be filled with joy. I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Is Paul being effeminate here? Is Paul being less of a man because he's speaking of his son in the faith that he loves? I don't think he is. I think we might be lacking something here in this Christian love and Christian friendship. But notice, it's not just a friendship. It is centered around Christ and the mission of the church. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 1, 5. After he says, I I remember your tears, I long to see you. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Notice that their friendship is not trivial. When they come together, their primary focus is not the game last night, it's not the new television series, but they are servants of God and His gospel. And they make it their aim to please Him 
and to serve him. And even at the final stages of his life, as Paul is looking death in the face, his greatest concern as he writes his son in the faith is that Timothy would press on in faithfulness to serve Jesus Christ. That Timothy would not be ashamed of the message and that he would suffer as Paul has suffered if need be. I love Vody Bauckham's summary of this book. He says, Paul's message is basically this to Timothy. They are about to kill me for preaching the gospel. When they do, you preach until they kill you too. That is the message that Paul gives to his young son in the faith. Press on in faithfulness to Christ. You've seen my life. You've seen my work. You've seen my love. Continue steadfastly in the Lord. You see this wonderful love that they have, but wonderful kingdom vision to advance the kingdom of God at all costs. They are brothers in Christ. They are father and son, but they are also co-laborers for the cause of Christ. We see this beautiful God-centered relationship that Paul and Timothy have. And lastly, we see the God-centered blessing that begins this letter. The God-centered blessing that begins this letter. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now remember who's writing, church. The Apostle Paul, right, who carries apostolic authority. So when he says this blessing, these are not just sentimental words. These are not just good wishes or positive thoughts. Maybe somebody's told you that before. I'm sending positive thoughts your way. Good vibes. Thank you very much. It's very appreciated. This is not that at all. But Timothy is invoking the threefold blessing of God upon his young son in the faith. Listen to what one commentator says. He says he pronounces this blessing as an apostle authorized to articulate the divine will of God and the good news of God. So special gravity is attached to the words from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He invokes a blessing of God upon Timothy. And we see something similar that Paul could speak for God, basically as a prophet, in 1 Thessalonians. He says, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, because it came from an authoritative apostle. So he invokes this God-centered, gospel-saturated blessing. Every letter that Paul writes... I looks again just to be sure. Every letter that Paul writes, we're not sure who wrote Hebrews, begins with the greeting of grace and peace to you. Every single time he uses that greeting. In 1st and 2nd Timothy, he adds mercy. Maybe it's because Timothy's ministry was difficult. We're not exactly sure. But what Paul has done is he's married two common greetings of the day, two cultural greetings. Grace, which is charis or charis in Greek, and it was the common Greek greeting of the day. Like we might say hello 
to someone. They would say grace to you, caris. And he takes that and marries it with the word peace or shalom, which was a common Hebrew greeting and still in many ways is. And he takes these two very common ideas and he basically Christianizes them. Grace to you. And what is grace, beloved? It is the unmerited blessing of God. Right? Some have said it is God's riches at Christ's expense. It is free blessings from the eternal God, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but according to the work and the redemptive act of Jesus Christ. And then he says peace. And that word shalom is total wholeness, total well-being with God and with man. It is a wellness of the soul to be internally and externally whole, to be good or right with God and to be good or right with your fellow man. And Paul helps us to see that grace and peace and mercy are only found in Jesus Christ and in God the Father. While these greetings are simply cordial greetings of men, they are actually the benefits given to those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Grace and peace are given to those that repent and believe, and grace and peace are the possession of all Christians that walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen, church, the God-centered nature of this letter that From the beginning, Paul is identifying his authority as an apostle and that he writes and he serves because of the commission of God. It is only because the Father, Son, and Spirit that Paul has the authority to write this letter and he basically, if you will, writes on their behalf, on behalf of God. We've seen the God-centered relationship that these men have. They have a heartfelt sincere love for one another, and yet they are both fully committed to the mission of God and to the advancement of the gospel. So I want to exhort you today, as I, looking at, I was really moved this week by this relationship. There's a, a church historian, one of my favorites, named Michael Haken, Baptist historian, and he's written a lot on Christian friendship and how different it was in previous times. And he, 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 he quotes letters written from men across the globe, William Carey and Andrew Fuller writing as William Carey ministers in India, and Andrew Fuller is, is longing to see his, his beloved friend. There's just a depth of Christian love and, and friendship there. And so we also see, though, their committed, Paul, commitment, Paul and Timothy, to co-labor in the cause of Christ. And brothers and sisters, let's labor together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's link arms together for the cause of our Lord. Let's lay down roots in this body and see what God wants to do for for years to come. I'm encouraged to see how the Lord is going to use this body of saints that He has here And I think more and more we need to see ourselves as a family covenanted together that God has providentially called together. We live in a transient culture. It is common that a pastor 
serves a church for about three years. That's the normal time now in our day. And I would imagine that a person in a church, it's even far less than that. That just we just sort of we're transient. We just sort of bounce around, we move a lot. What if we just lay down roots for decades and see what God would do through our efforts? And lastly, we've seen the God-centered blessing. Grace and peace and mercy from Jesus Christ and God our Father. So church, I hope, uh, I encourage you to read ahead and have those questions just so you can know what's coming. And as you leave here today, may you leave with the grace, mercy, and peace upon you from God the Father and Jesus our Lord. Let me pray.